Hello and welcome. I'm Sean Yeager, and this is Penny Lane, a show about the business, economics, and technology of music streaming presented by TrueStream. Along with Matt Squire, we're your hosts. To learn more about Penny Lane and past episodes, visit us at truestream.co slash podcast. That's T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M dot C-O slash podcast. Hey, everyone, before we get into this week's interview with Charles Alexander, a small favor, if you enjoy the show and find it valuable, and we hope you do, please take a moment to rate Penny Lane on iTunes so more people like you can discover and enjoy it as well. If you use Apple Podcasts and are subscribed, it's an easy couple of clicks. If not, you can simply go to truestream.co slash iTunes. That's T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M dot C-O slash iTunes to be redirected and click on that fifth star. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. We are delighted to welcome a dear friend of mine, uh, more important to our audience, a, a brilliant individual in the music industry, Charles Alexander. I'll give you a bit of a sample from Charles' extensive bio, just so you know who he is. Uh, he's an independent singer-songwriter, a digital strategist, and an artist manager. He recently, among former endeavors, launched Systemic, an artist and label services company, specializing in streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube, and more. He also owns and has for many years now operated Outside the Box Music, an artist management and marketing company where he helps artists, musicians, and songwriters create and extend their online presence. He's been doing that for many, many years, one of uh, the very earliest uh, to lead the charge there in Nashville and beyond. He is also the co-founder and former co-owner of Streaming Promotions. Charles has run digital campaigns for artists ranging from Ryan Cabrera, Curb Records, Kev Moe, Lacey Cavalier, and many, many more. With all of that, Charles, a little bit of backstory, because yours is interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit about the why of how you arrived in music and in Nashville and in streaming. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and Sean, thank you for that really kind and lovely introduction. Um, so, you know, I started life as a musician and a songwriter, like uh, like my dad's side of the family is very musical and and my cousins and I started out in bands probably when we were like 10, 12 years old when I was in as well. Um, and, you know, mostly uh, family events and stuff. And then I kind of graduated to playing around town um, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where I'm from. And then I came to the States to go to school. Um, and, you know, the the... The pathway to formally go into music as an artist um, wasn't really on the car- in the cards for me, um, so I went into science because that, that was also another passion of mine, um, and I ended up in a field called bioinformatics. And um, in that world, um, uh, we just ended up looking at a lot of data. So uh, we basically were responsible for software and apps and platforms that looked at how to mine that data um, and so and how to go into those knowledge bases and, and, and databases to find out how we can cure disease. And so at you know it, it, in my other career while still pursuing the music stuff, I just looked at a lot of data and was very comfortable with it. So when I decided to kind of jump into music full time and start a business. One of the things that was 
sort of a no-brainer for me in terms of being involved was this was like the uh, like around 2010 actually even before that um, it was right when the music industry was beginning to look and use data in meaningful ways and you know and there weren't a lot of us who were sort of well equipped to do that Um, and so that became a differentiating point and then as the industry and the business migrated more towards streaming and digital platforms, um, you know, the ability to look at and interpret data and to know what to do with it once, once you have that information became um, pretty vital. And so that's how I got into the whole thing. And so I, you know, was doing marketing, uh, digital marketing, and then got into artist management. And at least in Nashville, I was one of the few at the, you know, when we first met Sean, um, who actually tried to leverage data to kind of build careers. I'd like to start, uh, Charles, by discussing the broad implications of streaming's effects on music. We've been hearing and continue to hear over the past few months about how the very form of music is adapting to thrive in a streaming world. The mm. you know water flows to fit the cup, uh, whether it's more tracks per album, shorter tracks, songs or albums broken out over a series of segments in an Instagram story. Um, so, you know, to what degree is this, you know, perhaps certainly alarming to maybe admittedly a purist like myself, but uh, more importantly to artists, to the industry, to fans, does it matter that it's changing? Is it in fact changing? Uh, is this temporary? Uh, is, it, is it, you know, the way things are from now? And what's your take on, on the adaptation of music to streaming sort of the, the form following function? Mm. Yeah, I think all those things are in play, right? So, um, and and some of them are good, some of them not so good, and some of them downright awful, I think. Um, and, you know, most of my, like, some of my background is in biology. So, you know, my sort of default position is that, you know, you got to evolve in order mm-hmm. to survive. Um, but that being said, I, I do think there's some issues we need to discuss. But you know, some of the positives are that now musicians and artists have choice, you know, and because mostly of digital platforms and because of how, you know, cost effective or cheap it is to distribute music, to create and distribute music, and that you can reach a lot of people and you don't have to depend or rely on gatekeepers to get you to certain people or to certain organizations to get your music out to a large number of people. Um, the, the, the downside, I think, is that, you know, um, sort of by whose rules are you playing? Certainly you have some autonomy and you have some choice, but then at some point, if you're going to, um, you know, play in the space or be in that sandbox, you kind of have to take all these other things into consideration. So, uh, like, one of the things, you know, that gets bandied about, especially on the Spotify platform, is this term called Spotify Core. And Spotify Core is when uh, the songs uh, that any particular artist or any artist, for that matter, you know, creates songs. um, And that that particular song is favored by the curators, um, uh, for sure, but... At, at the same time, the algorithms seem to favor those songs too, based on how most of the audience of the platform is reacting with the music. 
So, you know, an example would be like Love. Like Love has, you know, his songs are very sort of Spotify core. And then now Troy Sivan, for example, is another example. And so the list goes on. And so the temptation then becomes, um, if you're a creative or an artist, is to go, go, okay, I'm going to write songs like that mm-hmm. to sort of um, chase chase that particular dog, right? Now, so the, now, yeah. If I may there, hasn't it always been that way? That's what occurs to me. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think it has. The, but the, I think the, the dog or the horse has changed, but the, the strategy of, of uh, you know, going with the flow, I guess. I'm terribly mixing metaphors, but... <laughs> I do that all the time, so yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I think what's different now, though, is that it's been sort of weaponized, right? Right. Yeah, so, you know... So it's, it's, not, it's not about chord progression and song structure. It's, it's, it's deeper, or rather, yep. in some ways, I guess... Um, more surface, uh, right. you know, a few things are deeper than the, than, than, than the lyrics, of course, but, um, but the, the form yep. of the, of the song itself. Yep. So, you know, so for example, you know, if you were to look at, I don't know, at the top 50 viral charts on Spotify this week, they're all going to have like a certain feel, you know, that's that a, a term that spot, you know, there's a bunch of terms that Spotify uses, in terms of how to measure or the metric that goes into play. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them is called valence and no one outside of, you know, <laughs> outside of music probably knows what a valence is, but if right. you're a chemist, you probably do, but uh, it's absolutely right. And, so, and for, and for our listeners, um, <laughs> give us, give us a, give us a, uh, a brief insight into valence. So valence is really about the, um, uh, the activity or the, uh, I don't even know how to put it in terms of music terms, um, but it has to do with the, the way the um, audience uh, reacts to it in a positive sort of fashion. So it really is a measure of happiness. So if, if the music has a high valence, it's considered like, you know, in, in the old Nashville system, they used to call it up-tempo positive. So that, right. those, those two metrics there can actually apparently be measured in, in a machine form. Um, so, you know, they, the algorithm or the software puts this music through its, the pipe, and then the pipe gives a, a sort of a measure of what the valence of this music is, which usually, um, you know, kind of tr- uh, is connected to things like uh, BPM, you know, and, and how energetic and how sort of emotionally uplifting it is. Not that you can measure emotion on data, but valence is one of those things that is sort of a priority metric in the Spotify world. So, that, yeah. So if you, if you then decide, hey, you know, let's just say you're a, a blues artist and you're just so frustrated and fed up with not being recognized and you go decide that you're going to write songs like Love, I think there are some problems with that, right? So the first being there aren't a whole bunch of blues artists anymore. And so we lose even more in terms of the historical, um, you know, the, the historical record in terms of somebody who sort of, is a, a practitioner in that particular art. And now, sort of marginalizing 
of music to some extent because you decide, well, that's, that's going to be what I'm going to do because I want to have a career. Now, on the other hand, if you do sort of work in the whole dance pop world and you like listen to Love or you listen to Prosvan or whomever it is and listen to your and you go, oh, I can do this in my sleep and I should just, you know, position myself and strategically go write the best songs I can write, and maybe they'll be even better than what's coming out of the major label system. And I think now you have data to sort of build, to sort of look at and build your career on, right? So it's all a matter of perspective. But, you know, it, it just calls, uh, I think it's something we as a community and as artists need to sort of consider and discuss when we sort of have, you know, when platforms such as Spotify specifically and to a lesser extent Apple Music or uh, Pandora have, are all sort of dictating now um, what maybe you want to think about in terms of creating music. And they have not come out and said it. In fact, they've said things to the contrary, which is you, you want to follow your artistic path. But then when the system itself or when the service or platform rewards a specific kind of music or specific types of music, then, you know, I think it's hard if you're an independent artist, especially, or if you're trying to emerge and build a career, not to take those things into consideration and maybe weigh those out of whack with everything else. I am three quarters through a book that I am just so enjoying called Hitmakers, um, yeah. the author is, uh, Derek Thompson, and he talks about a number of, of theories, psychological, of course, most of them. And, uh, as to, as to why anything, a song, a film, a television a show, an app, anything becomes, or is a hit. And he, I think one of his central, uh, points or theses is that most consumers, as he would say, are simultaneously neophilic, curious to discover new things and deeply neophobic, afraid of anything that's too new, right? And so those songs, those films, those experiences that repackage the familiar in new and interesting and exciting ways. And if I understood you, it sounds like valence may be a measure effectively of that. Yeah. Which is yeah. really interesting. Uh, well, let's, let's shift a bit, Charles, and talk about, so the, 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 the water, as it were, uh, is flowing in, into the new cup uh, called streaming. And then, of course, additional effects are, all right, well, how do we measure success in, in streaming? And I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, this, this recent uh, example, and I'm not going to lie, I had to Google it, but hoodie season, wasn't quite sure how to pronounce that. And um, the boogie with a hoodie, which just sounds ridiculous coming out of my mouth. But the fact that, you know, he hit number one on Billboard's 200 chart, having sold yeah. only 823 physical albums uh, yeah. with, I think it was 83 million streams. So what's your take on that? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, if I know what to make of it at all. You know, I'm, you know, I, I kind of feel like um, the the Billboard article references the number of units sold. I think, and right? The effect of the the with those eighty three million, and in fact, I had an exchange with the always insightful Mike Fabio uh, yesterday, where he pointed that out. Um, I don't see the number sixty thousand 
Okay, forgive me. So, so those yeah. eight hundred, those those eighty three million streams, he was quote credited with selling close to sixty thousand copies. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and what does that mean? I think what that means is that the way we measure success has completely changed. Now, next week, you know, it might be something completely different, right? But I, I think this is more interesting in in the sense that now we have, <laughs> depending on your um, on your perspective, a new benchmark or mm. a or, or a new floor, right? So I'm looking at Boogie with the Hoodie now, and he's got 18 million monthly listeners, and um, that particular song, Hoodie Sees, that that album has right, the album sold X number of units, but in total, yeah, I'll have to go and look and see, but it's like gazillions of stream count and then 18 million monthly listeners and 2.3 million followers to me the, the more important metric there is that he's got 2.3 million followers actually and let me pause you there this is a i think a fantastic segue so a, a really good segue into a conversation i had with a mutual friend of ours eli ball yesterday the ceo of Laird financial here in nashville our conversation was about the conversations eli has with many artists that he works with that they work with clarifying the effect of follower count to cash in pocket and so where I'm going here, and I know this is something we could probably spend hours talking about, is, you know, what what do you advise, or how do you guide the artists you work with, Charles, as to following the money, uh, or really, you know, following, I guess, the funnel? How do you coach a, a, an artist on making sense of that and having some sense of projecting and understanding income? Right. So now, in terms of raw cash. <laughs> it's it's really great that you know so we'll give it the hoodie has got at least what looks like you know 600 700,000 about 700 you know million streams right and because depending on how those streams are consumed the per stream cost or the per stream revenue in total is going to be roughly between four tenths of a cent to about nine tenths of a cent. Mm -hmm. And then depending on his deal, you know, that's going to get split further. But if it's a major label release, then that's an order of magnitude more uh, in terms of, you know, remuneration. But I am in the world of not only generating revenue, I need to be able to build a fan base. Right. So, you know, it's a pretty long path from discovery to fan engagement to building a fan base. So what I try to advise and counsel artists on is no matter what, there are metrics that matter in terms of the, the, the sort of the long tail. And then there are sort of these other metrics that in our world, even though we sort of look at it and we sort of market and promote it. The vanity metrics. Vanity metrics. So street, raw stream count is a vanity metric. It doesn't, it, it doesn't do anything except, you know, 
like it's it's just sort of like bragging rights. It doesn't do anything for you in terms of a long in terms of a long tail and building a fan base because you know two years ago we were talking about a bunch of artists that had zillions of streams and yet now they they lost the noise and so one of the things we try to encourage artists to do is to encourage whomever is listening to their music especially the spotify platform but this expect but this also applies to other platforms as well is to convert them into followers or into email lists or at least to social and then you know have a long-term plan to get all those folks onto mailing lists or to something more tangible that they can own. So Charles, with all of that, and again, I appreciate that this, you know, this is the very reason uh, you have a business <laughs> is because you're, <laughs> you're able to, uh, you know, if it were simple, uh, perhaps every artist would do it themselves, not to say that some don't, but, but the ability to harness all of these metrics uh, in, in concert, of course, with understanding the artist's goals and, and, mm. and, and arc and their art, their music, their audience, all of these things. In a nutshell, what, what is maybe in that opening conversation you have with an artist when you're considering working together, what's the guidance you offer about how they should at least approach the metrics and, and the shiny objects of, of streaming <laughs> how do you sort of put it in context for them briefly yeah so uh there's you know currently there's a huge obsession with playlists and you know and um we started a business three and a half years ago because of that obsession with playlists but but the playlists are not a marketing plan right so you can't you can't hang your hat that you know that everything is going to flow from you betting on getting on a major playlist and that's going to be your marketing plan mm -hmm. i think you want to integrate streaming and building a footprint building a strategy building traction on streaming platforms as part of a bigger whole and if you don't have that, then we usually discourage people from hiring us. Um, so because, you know, we're not a huge investment, but we are an investment. And if you're going to go down that road, then you have to have, again, a holistic plan as to how you're going to leverage all this when the best case scenario happens in streaming platforms. So let's just say you get added to New Music Friday, you know, for that one week on New Music Friday, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing when your song generates something north of 10 or 15,000 streams a day. But then the following week, there's a new New Music Friday, right? So, and then when that happens, what happens to your career, to your traction, to your music? And what did you do in that week-long period to take advantage of all that? Is there PR mm -hmm. around your project? Is, what are your social media impressions like? And by social media impressions, again, I'm not just talking about vanity metrics like, oh, you've got 45,000 followers on Instagram, and then you get like four or five likes on each post. That, that, that is an engagement. You know? That isn't an audience that's tied in to you. So you need to implement sort of all the different legs of the stool, at, you know, if not to the fullest extent, at least to some sort of fundamental 
foundational uh, method. What I hear you say, Charles, if I understand you correctly, is certainly the impact of, of playlisting has changed over the past perhaps year, certainly in two or three years, maybe. Uh, but but it's a it's a it's a flashpoint that artists need to capitalize on. But it's not a sustainable strategy. Simply working hard and grinding to get on the next playlist uh, is is not a sustainable strategy. Correct. Yeah, it's it's sort of the for me. It seems to me, it's like, you know, let's just say you're out on tour or you're playing shows here in town um, and you go into a pretty big room, you know, let's, so for the, for the sake of uh, argument, let's just say you end up opening for someone at the Ryman and, you know, that's a pretty big room and you just crush it at the Ryman. And everybody just thinks you're the cat's meow. The question then becomes, what do you do next? You know, you can, you can share that event on social. People can talk about it. But if you don't leverage that flashpoint, like you said, then how does that help your career? So with that, Charles, let's talk about, as you and I, before we began recording, uh, chuckled, uh, funny <laughs> but not, not funny, is the cost of free. Yeah, And, you know, we have seen through various um, industry analysts and publications recently that I believe for Spotify specifically, if not streaming broadly, paid ARPU, paid average revenue per user is actually down last year, was down, Mm -hmm. where ad-supported ARPU is up. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on what that means? Yeah, I, you know, I know that the, you know, the, 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 the paid subscriber revenue is a little down, but I don't, I don't know if it's time to panic. You know what that really means is that there's more artists on the platform, there's more adoption, and so the pool of money that's coming in is being divided. I think into, um, you know, more artists. If I remember the calculus right. And the reason the ad stuff is going up is because they have, I think, more ad support, you know, more ad revenue coming into the system. And I think they're also calculating or including in that part some of the ad supported stuff that is actually being, you know, like folks buying ads in the system, for example. Right. And, and I think, and, I, and certainly what you raised is a great point. My 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 understanding is that that a a drop in paid ARPU average average revenue per user is indicative of price changes, which I think is you know certainly as we saw yesterday the announcement that Apple Music will now be free for the premium tiers of Verizon subscribers, yep. uh, yeah. and as as Matt, my co-founder and I, who's not with us today, talk about frequently. That downward price pressure, I think, is is what we think about a lot. Matt certainly being a songwriter and producer, yeah. he thinks about it more than I do. Um, but I think it is the it is the elasticity of the price and the downward pressure on pricing that that is dropping that that paid ARPU and and as you say on the ad supported average revenue per user, uh, ad load is up certainly, and it would seem ad engagement therefore uh, is up. Any any thoughts? Um, in terms of strategies that, or just general uh, perspectives that artists should take with regard to the shift? I kind of think, again, um, you don't want to be putting all your eggs in one basket. So if, you know, there, there are entire artists or production teams um, whose entire business model is just get on many playlists as you can 
and generate as many streams as you can. And because you're, you know, you own the entire thing, your your share of the pie is pretty big. Therefore, if you get to like, you know, when we work with Keely, uh, when we got to five, 10 million streams, that, that was a really healthy revenue stream. Um, if you're looking at a shared revenue stream with other stakeholders for a song or whatever, then you know that that calculus is different or that calculation is different. So my take on that is that you you're going to leverage or you know whomever works with us is going to leverage all the different points of revenue. So for example, um, we're finding a pretty tight correlation between. Um, if you get placement in TV shows or film or whatever, that that in itself as a placement, you're going to generate revenue. Mm-hmm. But because now it's in a it's in a uh, different sort of um, outlet, uh, there's going to be some recognition there, and that's going to drive placement on playlists and vice versa. So if you get on a playlist, that's probably going to drive a music supervisor or editor to add your music to a show. So you're sort of cross-leveraging the fact that the discovery element or the, the, the visibility element on these different platforms is going to drive other opportunities, right? And right, so, then now, right. Right, so then now you're going to look at, oh, your presence on streaming and your presence on TV and film or whatever is going to drive other opportunities like selling tickets at shows. So now you go negotiate, you know, to maybe open for someone or even if you're the headliner, you know, whereas last year you were making 200 bucks a gig, maybe this year you're 1200 bucks a gig based on your visibility and what we think your, your fan base is now and what we think your visibility on these platforms is going to drive in terms of ticket sales. So if I, uh, if I hear you, Charles, it sounds like, and, and I know that this, certainly with digital, with downloads, um, and as, as formats have evolved, the, the message, it seems, becomes louder, more prominent, uh, more persistent, that downloads before, and to some degree still, CDs and vinyl and the remnants of physical media that are out there, and certainly now streaming, are a conduit to or a multiplier for the other uh, revenue streams or outlets within an artist's career. So in, in short, it sounds like, correct me, that the guidance is, this is not the moneymaker, much as we wish it were. Uh, streaming is is about channeling other opportunities, or, or or would you would you phrase that differently? I think streaming, or and I hesitate to say streaming, but but consumption on digital platforms, which of which streaming is a huge part now, right, um, can sort of be the driver to other revenue streams or other modes of consumption, and or vice versa, right? So if you have like a huge placement, if your tour is going really well, that can also drive adoption and consumption on streaming. But the bigger message is you need to have a holistic approach and sort of an integrated approach to your entire career of which streaming is just one leg of the stool. Great point. And I, I think it's so easy, you know, as as we are doing to some degree with this very podcast is putting putting the focal point on streaming. But I hear you saying that it's, it's got to be more holistic and artists need to think about how, how all the gears turn together in concert. Ab- absolutely. And then to not just be obsessed about stream count. Right. right. So, like, you know, I think that, that the whole vanity metric thing. Right. Um, 
So, you know, everybody wants stream count and we see all the time folks who get on independent Spotify playlists. Some are true sort of tastemakers or influencers in the Spotify ecosystem. Others are sort of like just these, you know, they're just sort of like stream generators. They don't do anything else except generate streams. They don't generate followers. They don't generate saves. They don't generate any of the other metrics that indicate, you know, true engagement. And then we see people with like millions of streams and then they cycle out of a release the stream count drops. They don't get any other traction elsewhere. And But more importantly, they aren't considered artists who have traction on the platform, even though the stream counts are high. And that has to, that has to be, that has to mess with somebody's head. I mean, I can imagine being an artist, you know, and, and for, for however many years now, that's been the number of the metric you've watched. And Yeah, I'm not going to mention the names because I don't want to give them any more ink than they've got. But these mystery core artists um, sort of uh, generating all these phantom streams on real accounts where people are, you know, uh, it, it looks like real users are listening to phantom acts. And so, and the goal behind all of that is just this one dimensional perspective about how important stream count is to an artist's career, you know? And I, I just don't think, I don't think those artists are doing themselves any favors, especially now that they've been busted. Um, but at the same time, it's just that there's a lot more to this than just raw stream count. Right. You know? no, excellent point. And I think that, that transitions into the final bit of the conversation I'd like to have, Charles, which is about trust. And I think that's a perfect segue. Um, whether we look at what's going on with title, is that, that um, particular incident continues to escalate, and I believe there are now uh, legal proceedings uh, in somewhere in the EU, wherever that's occurring. Correct. But what is your take? What do you observe? Um, you know, in, a, in short, where should we put our trust and where should we be skeptical uh, when it comes to either stream counts or, or other metrics that are in or around streaming? Well, I think you need to put the trust where you know we historically have put our trust in the in the fan base you know and, and i'm not saying that every act now or every band has to go out and play live but then i think you look at some really easy um, rule of thumb or benchmark kind of measures which is if you've got 200 or you know, uh, I'm just pulling up a random number. Let's just say you have 10 million streams, but then you've got like 250 followers on Facebook and then like 12, you know, 1200 followers on Instagram. And then you have like, you know, not, not that most people will be able to see it from the outside, but you have like 200 email list subscribers. That isn't a career. You know, I, I just don't think now there's no sort of the, the word I like to use a symmetry um inside or you know inside your your career so who cares if you've got 20 million streams and 200 followers or you can't sell a ticket in your domestic market you know or or you know that that whole thing i can't remember the name of the band now but you know this was like about what six months ago that band that had a tour of the uk based on some numbers because they were faking it and then you know like 10 people show up and the entire european tour got canceled so um 
I, I think that's where you put your trust. You know, you put your trust in fans. And, you know, for us, it's a much easier project to take on when fans are losing their minds and there's all kinds of traction online about how great they are, but then their stream counts are low. That is an easier problem to solve because now you just bring on a team that can sort of take all the, that narrative and that authenticity and, you know, one or two great live performance videos of this band crushing it on stage, people losing their minds, and then make a case to the DSPs about them having to support this band, you know? And so, yeah. I, I just think that's where you put your trust. You know, we work in this space and we work in the label services world where now we take a more holistic approach than just saying, okay, let's get a song on a playlist. And just getting a song on a playlist doesn't build careers. You know, it's the first step to visibility and helping you have a conversation about, yeah, I think we're great. But here's sort of objective or semi-objective or empirical proof that, you know, other people think we're great. You know, there's been next no sort of any campaign around this. And look what we've got organically on these streaming platforms or on YouTube or whatever, you know, some other platform where people have organically gravitated towards, you know, your art. And then once you have that question solved, then building a narrative and building a campaign or building a career forward from there is a is an easier road to hoe, I think, than uh, doing it the other way. You know, great place to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Charles. We really appreciate it. And for our listeners, who I'm sure will want to find out more about you and Systemic, where can they find you? Where's their best place to to follow and connect with you online? Yeah, so a couple of places. The first is just systemicmusic.com, and that's just spelled S-Y-S-T-E-M as in system, and then I-C after that music.com and then we also have a sister site which is sort of a curation site called tastemakermusic.com um, and that's kind of where we curate playlists and have general discussions about the music world in general so those would be the two places I would go check out fantastic well again thank you so much Charles this has been great Thanks for listening to this episode of Penny Lane. If you enjoyed it, and we hope you did, you can leave us a five-star rating and tell a friend to support more great conversations and episodes. If you have feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at TrueStreamCo, that's at T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M-C-O, or send email to podcast at TrueStream.co. 